Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Laurie Kilmartin, who is a friend of the podcast. She was on an episode of season one, the 300 episode season one. This is now season two, if you're just joining me. Tea with Alice is a place where we have difficult conversations with interesting people. This was a difficult conversation to have with Laurie. We talked about uh, failure and success and and ageing and popularity and all of these sort of inchoate things that control the lives of of performers and comedians and writers and women and life and death of course came into it as it always does I really enjoyed having this conversation I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it and I hope you look up Laurie and find her incredible work she's a really really good comedian and also her podcast with Jackie Cation is a great listen so seek them out obviously without getting hacky about this the conversation made me think about how lucky I am to have the support of uh, Patreon which got me through my maternity leave which lets me do work that I'm interested in and not just uh, take work because I'm desperate for money and the fact that I had that stability even through the pandemic was extraordinary and astonishing. And I am forever grateful for that. Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to go if you want to support the podcast. You do not have to. You are supporting it by listening to it uh, or sharing it with friends. But if you want to support uh, Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser, it's a one-stop shop. I put up all of my stand-up specials there for free, all of my podcast updates, my uh, blogs, my weekly Tea with Alice salons and uh, my weekly writers meetings that's all I've, I've done enough plugging I've promised myself I'll do more plugging in general of my stuff because you're obviously listening to this because you're interested in it me it my work and so I shouldn't be um, modest anyway I'll let you get on with listening and I'll talk to you again next week you're having tea with Alice hi welcome to the podcast who are you and what are you drinking I'm Lori Kilmartin, and I am drinking a chocolate cookie dough because my oven needs to be cleaned. And so right now, when I tried to make cookies last night, um, it just started smoking. So I got to do a clean. <laughs> so I'm just uh, I'm just drinking cookie dough all day long. I mean, that sounds like an incredible lifestyle choice, and I approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's the effect on your on your well being? Because people like compare the like slow buzz of a green tea with the like sharp hit of caffeine of, of like a, a coffee. Where does co- cookie dough fit into that spectrum of sensation? It makes my teeth feel like they're crumbling out of my mouth, which <laughs> um, you know is depending on your point of view is a terrifying or a pleasing sensation. Yeah, I do actually feel like I should brush my teeth, but I'll. I can I can hang out through this podcast and oh, let the sugar you. do its work. That's and then, very benevolent. And then brush. Thank you. <laughs> I guess it depends if your if your teeth are your enemies or your friends. Well, if I get a cavity, I'll name it Alice. It's a tribute to you forever. <laughs> that is an honor. What have you been uh, wrestling with of late? I guess I've been trying to figure out what's next. Um, I cannot seem to get another late night job. So it's a little frustrating, and uh, I'm, part of me is like, uh, all right, did I, did I all of a sudden suck at writing? Because I've been sending in packets and working really hard on them. I'm like, oh, maybe I just lost all my ability. Or, you know, who knows? You, don't, you never know why you didn't get a job. But right now I'm just sort of bummed that I haven't been able to do anything. 
find another one. For many years, you that's your been your bread and butter, writing for late night comedy shows, right? Yeah, I wrote for Conan for like almost 11 years, yeah. And you would think that's like, you know, the Oxford degree of late night TV kind of boosters in that it's like it's a very yes. funny show very consistently for many years and famous for that. Yeah, and you know, he let a lot of writers go before the end and I got to stay the whole, like it's, you know, I I went through a lot of obstacles. Yeah. So you'd think I'd be vetted, but I guess not. I don't know. I don't know what the world is anymore. And also there's not a lot of late night jobs, so there's a bajillion writers who are eminently qualified, really funny. There's like, you know, if you're on Twitter, you know how many funny people are just able to write short jokes. So the competition is fierce. And and I, I could definitely see if I was, if I had a show, I'd be like, you want to give someone new a chance? Like, I totally understand that, you know? So I think in theory, they want to give someone new a chance. Uh, but Right. What I think happens, as far as I can see, as someone mm-hmm. who's like slightly on the outside, I occasionally get uh, writing jobs, but it's not something that I like chase a lot of the time. As as far mm-hmm. as I can tell, someone gets a job and then they get passed around because you want somebody who's yeah. vetted, who's guaranteed, who's but but then if you're kind of off that in initial boil, people just don't think of you. Or, or there's something about that where I see people who get a a job and then they get a job. And then they get a job and they get this kind of a follow-on thing. But if they don't get a job for a minute, then no one gives them a job. Yeah, that happens too. I may be in that place, you know. Either way, it's not a – doesn't feel good. Yeah, I can't imagine it feels – To be there. Great, but also you know you're good. I do, um, but I wonder if – so. So what? (laughs) Who cares? Do you ever have that moment where you think, like, maybe I could commit a crime – like a minor crime and get enough news coverage that I'd be back at the top of people's minds. Does that ever occur to you? Yes. I mean, the crime of pivoting to complaining about cancel culture. Um, <laughs> like, Oh, that's such a sweet gig, man. The lore gets stronger every day, you know? Think of how the Patreon would grow. There's no downside except I'd have to uh, medicate myself to sleep and operate every day. But other than that, my son would be... No student loans. I mean, we'd be good. It's extraordinary. You see it now, like it's almost um, mathematical how it gets kind of done. Someone will say, do a, do a bit on set that's like controversial and then they'll film it and they'll make sure that it kind of goes to the right people. And someone uh, literally today sent me a link of like, hey, this guy, this comedian, he's been on Joe Rogan because he said something and then he got cancelled and the thing that he said was not quite offensive enough to have been cancelled for. And, you know, I, I saw the bit. It doesn't seem particularly controversial to me, but, it, you know, he did it at a university campus and, and now he's got it made. Yeah, colleges are uh, hypersensitive, hypersensitive. Um, but, you know, everyone knows that going in. So to, to as a comic to complain that colleges are like you, that's just, you know, that those that's why you get paid so much is you're not allowed to say anything. Yeah, You know, they pay really well and you have to be incredibly bland. So something like that seems so engineered, as you were saying, like, oh, yeah, know, I'll just piss off this women's college and then <laughs> go on Rogan. And guess what? The, the checks come in. Yeah. You wouldn't see the same kind of outrage marketing if somebody did that at a corporate gig. I think the 
you know, the cancel culture people, the people who are, you know, there's the, there are the cancel culture people and then there are the people who are worried about cancel culture and both of them are really annoying. Yeah, right, right, right. But the people who are worried about cancel culture coming for our freedoms. <laughs> our freedoms. You know, that's the thing. They're like, they, everyone's going to get canceled. I know, and you're, it's so silly. They're going to come and police your dreams or, or whatever. The slippery slope. Right to uh, sort of authoritarian rule and you know that's like that is a thing that I think is genuinely worth worrying about but a lot less than they do like I think it should occasionally occur to you of like hmm I wonder if you know people are going to kick my door in and arrest me for being a comedian and that occurs to me like in nature in the wild that occurs to me like Mm -hmm. maybe once a year where I'm like huh Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's ever going to happen but the people who worried about it, they worry about it so much of the time. It feels like like such a waste of time. It is a waste of time, but it does occupy your mind. Like we we do need to be angry about stuff, but the actual stuff we should be angry about is so infuriating and you feel like you can't do anything about it. Like climate change and the fact that, you know, that the people that are causing it, uh, you know, the incredible, you know, wealth that's causing it, you can't, you can't do anything. Yeah. But you can yell uh, and and you can solve the problem that you're creating, which is about, you know, being angry about, you know, cancel culture like that. That feels like something that you can at least complain about and get some resolution or agreement. You know, you have to be really concerned in these kind of broad principles ways that the tools you're using are tools you're willing to extend to your enemy. Like if you use a weapon, if you mm. invent a weapon, you know that your enemy is going to have that weapon and use that weapon. That's how, mm-hmm. you know, weapons technology works. That's how technology works. That's how society works. So I often think about uh, Yasmin Abdel-Magid, who was a um, public figure in Australia who did a tweet oh, about okay. uh, Anzac Day, which is our uh, our big cultural thing, Anzac Day, when the Australians and New Zealand troops were sent onto the beach in Gallipoli and died in just horrendous numbers. It was a hor- horrifying defeat. It was a massacre. And for some reason, we've drawn our national identity from that. It was our establishment of ourselves as a nation, other than we uh, before that, we sort of th- saw ourselves as an offshoot of the UK. And then we kind of got this national identity forged in blood and sand. And she, the, the, the sort of ritual saying on Anzac Day is, lest we forget. And she tweeted, lest we forget, like Manus Island, Nauru, and she mentioned an, a number of other kind of things that Australia's been involved in or ignored or, you know, a mild point and basically got run out of the country. She moved wow. to the UK. She ended up moving to the UK because the backlash was so intense. And that's the thing. If we make it so that you know, a thousand people tweet and you get fired or 30,000 people tweet and you never have a job in the country again. That's politically neutral. You don't get to choose who finds those 30,000 people or who deploys those 30,000 people. It's just a matter of numbers. If that's pressure that you can then apply, they can also apply that pressure. So you'd better be sure that you're willing to have that turned around. Yeah, but it, and it also feels like the worry about consequences, it, it, the people that feel it is like, are the people that are on, quote, our side? You know, like you're saying this woman had to go to the UK. I mean, there's so many comics I know that did not have to go to the UK that are still getting spots locally. And, you know, it doesn't feel like the guys get that same sort of uh, harangment, you know? This is an interesting thing. Almost by definition, the people who need um, community support 
other ones who the community can turn on and destroy. But if you're above community support, if you have money or if you have influence or if you have power, it's not nice. I imagine it's quite hurtful and unpleasant and painful to have people saying mean things about you. But in the end, if you have a door you can close on a house in a secure street and a security guard that you can hire, you just go off Twitter for a while. And that's all the effect that it has on your life. Um, Right, right. Very little of it will leak into your real life unless you're somebody who needs to be online for your job, who needs to have that work and can't survive without that work, at which point then the only pond you're allowed to swim in has been poisoned. Right. Yes. Oh, my God. That's just a great way of saying it. So I think it's it is a dangerous thing, this cancel culture thing. But equally, I think it's a dangerous thing to feel like the only solution to cancel culture is this uh, Elon Musk version of free speech. Yeah. He's been kind of quiet recently, just sitting back and allowing the Taliban to get verified on Twitter. (laughs) Just all this. Oh, my God. What a mess. Yeah. And then uh, then there's the people who are like, well, everything short of that. That was Elon Musk's um, policy going in to Twitter, which was sort of yeah. very appealing to a number of friends of mine was just he said, we're only going to enforce the law. Anything below the law. So anything that's not illegal, any speech that is not illegal should be allowed on, on Twitter. And I sort of get that as a as a principle, because it's very hard to take an ethical stance as a business and marketplace of ideas yeah. etc and, and if you want to say that that's cool if you want to ignore the fact that it's an advertising platform and it makes its money from advertising and so it needs to be a sort of a clean and nice billboard not a billboard covered in shit uh, that people are allowed to throw their shit at but if you do think it like that the law the law the law that's one of the principles that you often see kind of if a woman is complaining about sexual assault or harassment the law why don't you go to the law this is the thing that should be dealt with by the law not by the community and as a lawyer <laughs> I get that and I understand wow. the appeal of I didn't that. know that about you yeah I was a lawyer Very I'm so sorry <laughs> Like I, I only lasted about I a mean, year. I'm, now I'm incredibly disappointed that you're a comedian. <laughs> you could have been someone, yeah, you, for God's sake. You and my dad. <laughs> I get the appeal of that, but also who do you think makes the laws? How do you think the laws get made? Like the law is not, as a lawyer, you you find out very quickly that the law is made by people for peopley reasons. Yeah, right. And enforced by people for peopley reasons. And... You know, the, the fact that white-collar crime is far more expensive to society than somebody stealing a television but far less criminalised. You know, you yeah, can be stealing right. for, from your workers for 10 years, stealing the money out of their pockets, stealing the bread from the mouths of their children to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars, not paying them superannuation, underpaying them, less than minimum wage, less than they deserve, and you will get a fine and if you steal $50 from Bottle O, you will go to jail. Yeah. That's the law, <laughs> you know? There's also the thing of Elon Musk in particular, he's so sensitive. Like, he's not he's not running Twitter that way. He, you know, I mean, there's lots of cases where people uh, criticized him and they were, you know, immediately their, their, their accounts were suspended. And a guy named Ken Klippenstein, he's a reporter, he uh, tweeted a video that no one else has of a Tesla stopping just uh, on its own, 
on the Bay Bridge in uh, Northern California and causing an eight-car pileup. And like we all heard about it and I was like, oh God. But to, to see it makes you, you know, is it's extra jarring. And that tweet was disappeared and he became very hard to find on Twitter. So, you know, even Elon Musk who, um, and I even hate talking about him or giving him any sort of oxygen, but uh, his, his um, you know, oh, just let all the ideas play out. You know, everyone gets their free speech. That's not how he's running it. He's, he's definitely running it um, to protect himself. No, so, yeah, and I'm garbage. friends with people who are really big Elon Musk fans. They think he's sort of got this great ambition, this great vision for the future, this grand idea of what humanity can be and that, that this, that's why he's saving up the money. But I think this idea of letting people get rich and then they get to decide what to do with society because government is terrible at it. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things that sound good until you um, – have you heard of people? <laughs> Like, how many people do you think can go to Mars? Maybe six. So is that all you're willing to save? And I'm, I'm guessing they're all white. You know, I mean... No, no, no. Elon Musk said that you could um, indenture yourself into servitude in order to get a ticket to Mars. Did he really? Yeah. He's been reading the same science fiction books as I have, but I oh think he God. thinks the heroes are the ones that I don't think are the heroes. Oh, my God. Wow. Interesting. Like, if, yeah, there's always these, like, dystopian future things where there's, like, some billionaire who owns everybody's heir. Mm-hmm. And I think he reads those books and is like, cool, I yeah. want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to be the heir-owning guy. Anyway, so you're, you're wrestling with late night. Yeah, well, wrestling with uh, unemployment and, and kind of wondering, um, is there still a place for me? Uh, what's the place? How do I – how do I – how do I, I guess, pivot or start over a little bit if I'm going to go into like scripted stuff. And, um, you know, it's, I like doing late night cause I really, I like writing jokes that are about the, the news cause I follow the news and seeing them on TV that night. It's fun. It's like instantaneous. I just like worked with somebody for a year on a pitch and we, we got no's and then he seems to have like not lost interest in it. And it's like, wait, this was a year. And so we're, you're what? <laughs> and um, even though we got tons of like really positive feedback and we had a really kind of powerful comedy person coming in as a producer, it just, it was like, well, what was this whole year for? You know, I'd rather be writing uh, George Santos jokes that at, expire within 20 hours of writing them but at least it's something where you get a reaction i i i like to get a laugh close to immediately not a year and a half later or never you know yeah i totally understand that and also there's something really exciting about the challenge of being told to make something funny that is really hard to make funny I'm currently yeah. dealing with that. I, I write um, jokes for the news quiz on BBC Radio. And cool. there's just been this, like, Gender Recognition Act passed in Scotland and uh, the English Parliament has blocked it using a thing that they've never done before. They've never kind of stepped in on Scotland's, wow. like, independence in that way to tell them that they're not allowed to have a law and and it's about gender and gender recognition and so it's like a whole can of worms and it's like do you think that's gonna 
get Scotland to peel away or is it not enough of a... I don't know. It depends on how the news characterizes it. And, you know, right. the, the news quiz sort of straddles this line because it's on the BBC of being sort of like real news or being able to be kind of influential in that. So, like, is there a way that we can frame this where it is about Scottish independence rather than, you know, because, of course, if you make it about trans rights, then it's going to put the panel oh, yeah. in trouble. It's going to be ugly. No one wants to even see people. Basically, I, I don't even want to just saying it or that. not saying yeah. it enough will cause a scandal. Like I had yeah. I had somebody um, drop my Patreon because one of the guests that I'd had on a podcast once had said something in a different context about what a friend of his thought about trans rights. Wow. Yeah. And they were like, sorry, I can't support you anymore because your friend said that his friend, not on my podcast, in a different wow. context. Wow. And I was just like, this is a, so now, but obviously this is news. We have to cover it. It's important. Yeah. yeah. Leaving it out is a form of cowardice. So figuring out a way that you can frame this issue so that it'll be light and funny. Right, 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 right. Like that's so much fun. It might be heavy and funny. <laughs> yeah, that can also, sometimes just saying the truth is funny. Yeah, silly, sometimes silly isn't an option, but you could still get a, a nice laugh out of it, you know? But yeah, it's, that's, but that's, again, that's, that's challenging. It's fun. Uh, six months from now, whatever you write will probably, you know, the, the new, the news moves so quickly and sensibilities change so quickly that it won't even, you know, it probably won't be, it wouldn't be, be usable. So th th there's like the topical element is so exciting to me because it reflects exactly what's happening today. And, um, you know, it will seem dated as it should in five years, you know. That's the thing that you like about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th th that's the hard part is like you can't like for ha have like a list of your monologue jokes as a sample because they they're stale so you're asking someone to go back in time and like appreciate this Mitt Romney joke because it was written at three o'clock in the afternoon and the story broke at one o'clock and you know the audience heard it at six o'clock you know all those things come into play because you're just reading it 10 years later and going who's Mitt Romney you know so you can't <laughs> even use like your best work as an example of what you do because it it looks stale no matter how good the joke is. Yeah, it's almost like being a, being a chef or something. Yes. You can't be like, I made the most amazing pie three years ago. It Like people wept. Yeah. Like, that doesn't <laughs> translate. Right. Let me defrost it. I saved a piece and let's see how it tastes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy. You do podcasting and online-y stuff. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about doing your own kind of version of a late night show or does this, that feel like too much of a That's hassle? a lot of work. Um, that is mm. a lot of work. Uh, so no, I'd rather, <laughs> I do stand up, I go on the road. I'd rather put that energy to at least my act. Um, mm. yeah. Uh, I guess right now I'm trying to like write a half hour. So a half hour, like scripted show. So I guess that's where I'm putting that kind of comedy energy. Yeah. But uh, part of me, you know, I feel a little, as, as you can probably see from my stammering, a little not sure and uh, sort of lost. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard place to be. Mm -hmm. And like a, a genuine thing to, to wrestle with. I think every creative person feels that at some point. Right. And then it's so easy to go come back with platitudes of like, it'll all turn out. It'll, it'll you know, it'll be fine. Or, you know, you're so good that it is inevitably going to come up 
positive. I hope. That's important to like feel and believe. Yeah. I mean, eventually everything turns out because you you die and you 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 turn up in the ground. Like, yeah, everything turns out. We all at, at one point we yeah. stop living and then we have no more struggles. So in a way that 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 does solve all my problems. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope, you know, uh, be, be, between now and death, I hope to, you know, have one more spasm of success. That would be nice. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. When I had my um, baby, I just had this quite, I don't know if it's because my mom died or not, right. but I had this feeling of like, oh, now I have this person, the best possible outcome for my life in this way yeah. is that she's there to watch me die. And that she's sad about it. You know, yeah. like that's the best outcome now for my life in one way. That's weird. I was just thinking yesterday, like like how you could be carefree your whole life. And then when you're a parent, you really like, please, God, let me die first. Like that's ultimately what you're begging for every morning when you drop them off at school. Please let me die first. Yeah. Please. That's it. Yes. And ideally, like in the best case scenario, you have a lovely relationship with them and they feel supported by mm -hmm. you and you don't fuck them up too badly. Yeah. And, and then they're there and they're sad, but they can cope. You've given them enough resilience, like, and it's a time at which their life is together enough and, you know, they finish school or university or they're married or they have kids and you get to see the kids like that's That's all bonuses. That's the dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I were to tell myself at like when I was in my 30s, this is this would, you know, be the one thing I worry about constantly that underlies everything I do. I'd be like, what? Why? Why? Why did you have a baby? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem fun. It just seems like you bring into your life like uh, potential doom scenarios that you never, ever would have thought of before that all, all day long. You know. I was having this discussion the other day with somebody who's on my Patreon and like booked in for a consultation to like ask me whether they should have children. And I, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. But one of the things that, that yeah. they were worried about was um, this, like, that it's not fun, that statistically parents are less happy. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about that because I don't think happiness is the point of life. Interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sort of think, what is happiness? Happiness is just like momentary sort of pleasure for me, like satisfaction or nourishment or difficult problems or interesting, engaging things are the point of life. And just like getting a massage is like nice, I guess. Like I don't really mm -hmm. understand that definition of happiness that doesn't involve loving people and being worried about them which yeah. in itself is not a pleasant sensation. Being in love is not a pleasant sensation. Loving the people around you is actually exhausting. Yes, it is. But also Very the point so. of life, I think. I think so. I believe, yeah. Well, and the idea, I guess you have to define happiness because um, there, like, there's times, you know, just like a now, just where I'm like, I have to remember, like, this is, this is the, this is the best. Like what I have, like, all right, I'm worried about money, getting a job. But I'm like, I'm home. I see my kid all the time. He's, I love him. He's great. This is fucking awesome. And it's going to end yeah. um, as all phases of life end. And I don't want to spend all of it being worried about what might not happen or might happen in the future. I just want to like enjoy, you know, watching a TV show while I'm sitting next to my long-legged son <laughs> and he likes it. He likes hanging out with me, you know? 
That's so great. That's such a lovely thing. Yeah. yeah also, I, I, I don't, at the moment, this kind of baby phase and this toddler phase is, for me, hilarious and fun. Just the fact that it's yes. exhausting doesn't even count to the fact that I laugh more every day than I've ever laughed in my life because she's just right, right, so right. funny. You're watching a tiny genius idiot <laughs> figure out the world. Like their their brains are so vast and they like pick things up so quickly and they don't know how anything works. And like it's amazing. Yeah. What an incredible thing yeah. to be able to witness and to be yeah. part of. And then his other problem was he was like, I'm not that interested in other people's children. When I meet them in like social events, I don't really like children. And I kind of was like, it's like me going, hey, look at that tree. And you go, yeah, cool tree. <laughs> but for me, it's a tree that I, you know, I went to the deepest, darkest savanna and I pulled out a seed of a rare tree and I brought it back and I planted it and I figured out like yeah. what nutrient balance in the soil was going to make it grow the best. And then like every day I've like made sure that the, it's got enough water and sun and, and now it's like 10 feet tall and it looks beautiful and it's just put out flowers for the first time. You don't give a shit about the tree, but this is my tree, you know. Yeah, right. Of course it's interesting, which is sort of what's hidden behind that phrase of like it's different when it's yours because that makes it feel like it's something selfish about it. Yeah. Um, or just that your I, genetic I material will make you love it, but that's not what it is. It's the time that you spend, right? Yes, right, right, right. And um, I think that's just some sort of human instinct, you know, too. Um, but I, I'm obsessed with my son, you know, crazy about him. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not, like, super into other people's kids. But I, I know that they're as obsessed as I am. Like, I realize I'm not the most obsessed mother, you know. <laughs> and you don't want to be. You don't <laughs> want to be go, that oh, mother. Oh, I could never have that happen to my son. I'm like, oh, I'm even more than you. But, no, like, probably everyone has this level of, just worry and fear and like if something happened to your kid you would i would I, like I, I, this is getting super grim but um i follow a couple moms that um whose kids were killed in school shootings Oof. and because i'm just like how are they even upright and they're tw you know they're tweeting through it and they're they, t they take you through all the emotions and and i feel like well maybe if i <laughs> If I pay attention and listen and I, you know, give this person my attention, that won't happen to me, you know, ah, <laughs> like that's sort of this bargain, like, all right, uh, uh, I won't ignore it. I won't ignore that this happened. I'll follow these three moms and I'll, I'll read all these really incredible, painful tweets. And at the same time, maybe that'll buy me, you know, uh, a ticket to paradise <laughs> which is being to have that not happen that's an amazing kind of internal mass yeah i had a friend whose brother was killed uh, in a hit and run when he was oh, like gosh. in his teens and she asked me to edit her like as a uh, someone who writes and stuff um to edit her victim impact statement that she made to the court uh, in seeking wow. to have him uh, the, the chap convicted for murder or manslaughter or whatever it was um and uh, that is the hardest piece of editing work that I've ever done in my life. Oh my gosh. Like trying to figure out what she was trying to say and then also like make some suggestions about how to articulate it and then also make some suggestions about like maybe this incredible expression of pain makes you look crazy to the court. <laughs> like maybe you want to... Just like as a technical exercise, having to right, figure it out as, right. but also she's my friend and these are her feelings and this is, you just can't, 
it was yeah genuinely one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life Um, oh my gosh awful yeah you just can't you just can't imagine or you don't want to imagine and so you imagine all of the time what that would feel like so to your Patreon friend, this is the kind of, these are the kind of discussions you'll have <laughs> all the time. If you don't like this discussion on, on a podcast, you are going to hate parenthood. So <laughs> These are all of the thoughts that you would have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's also this um, school of thought, uh, particularly among comedians, vegan comedians particularly, of like you shouldn't have children. It's the wrong thing to do. Um, because it's bad for the environment and I sort of in my head I tie that to your kind of effective altruism movement Mm, right yeah 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 Sam Bankman Fried Sam Bankman Fried is now the face of that yeah 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 yeah. but that yeah it's it's so I think it's sort of pointless trying to quantify human life in that way whether it's financially or in, in terms of like environmental impact I don't think the problem is individual choice there. I think the problem is like big companies selling us paper clips. Yeah, and and then you know, not that I would advise this for a comedian because the life is so uh, sporadic. You know, the income so sporadic. But if you feel that way, you could always adopt an older kid who's already here, taking up resources, so <laughs> uh, and just make their life better. If that's if that's the thing that's holding you back, I always feel like it's something maybe something else that's holding you back but you don't want to tell people you're terrified to have a kid at a party so you just say it's not good for the planet yeah because that's true yeah yeah but I, I that's also it's not good for the planet but it might be good for humanity or it might be good for the planet or you know you can't I don't I, I don't find that way of thinking particularly I'm, I'm trying to think about this stuff at the moment because I'm trying to write my show for this year my solo show which is an hour-long touring thing and I've got a debut in February and I don't really know what I'm going to talk about because wow, I don't just want to talk about being a mum to other mums because right. yeah. that's yeah. not the kind of comedian I have ever been. Yeah. I've never talked about my personal life or my personal relationships particularly much except when I think they're kind of more broadly thematic and I want to write a show if, but I can't talk about anything else because it's the only thing I've been doing for the last year. So I have to figure out how to write a show about parenting that will be appealing to a 22-year-old boy in the audience. The one thing I, I that was helpful for having a boy is that men love it when you talk about them and they identify with the boy <laughs> that I talk about. Sometimes I, I, like, I feel like that too. I like, I want my, every joke to be accessible to everybody. And I don't want, I don't yeah. want eyes rolling when I get up on stage from a young guy. But like, like sometimes, you know, they just aren't going to connect with you. It's hard to admit that, you know, um, I, and I just know this by watching like what, what makes my son laugh. And I, and I think if he didn't know me and he was just at the show, he's 16, he's old enough to, I, there's 16 year olds at shows, um, that, that wander in for some reason. And what would he think about me? Would he, you know, maybe he'd be interested because I have a kid, a boy and I'm talking about like boy stuff a little bit, um, you know, and I and I, then I try to remember when I first started going to stand up before I even was doing it. You know, there'd be like these yeah. old men complaining about women, and you go to the bathroom in pairs, like that classic hacky, you know, kind of comedy. <laughs> and I was like, that kind of made me want to be a comic, but I was like, ugh, I don't want to hear from you. Like it's, you know, yeah. But um, but if I, I 
there were so many like that. I can't remember if there was anyone that wasn't like that. Like if they had just been, you know, talking about different topics. I have no idea. You know what? I've, I've wandered off all over the place and nothing was helpful. But, um, but you know, maybe every joke isn't going to be something that every audience member can glom onto for, for reasons that are, you know, any, not anything you can control. No, no, you're right. That is, that is a good point and it's a good thing to keep in mind. I think, I think though, that I need to kind of, I don't know, in my head previously I've had two of my friends when I write my jokes. I have these two very different political friends. I have one uh, friend who is sort of a, a very fairly right-wing, fairly kind of libertarian, fairly, you know, uh, academic, and I have one friend who's like a, a non-binary director in New York. Uh, and they are, you know, very woke and very... And I try and write a joke that I could have them both in the room and... It, maybe not laugh in the same way at it, but that I wouldn't lose either right, of them. Right, right, right. They would both be able to hear what I have yeah. to say. Um, and that, I don't know if I would ever be successful. I don't think they've ever been in the same audience. I don't know if that would work. But in that way, I try to balance my jokes so that they are not for both of them, but so that th those two people can be in the room together yeah. and still feel welcome in my show. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, you know, I have friends who've lost... Um, children or who've had you know miscarriages or who are can't have children I would like them to be able to come to my show and hear me talk about my child without them feeling like devastated is that possible or is that just one of those things where the topic itself is going to just completely throw you out of out of being able to enjoy it well that's uh that's on them you know I mean you you who knows how how someone you know if they've you know, have had trauma revolving the top. That, that is the weird thing. Like I've, I've taught, I, you know, I joke about having a miscarriage and stuff and you, and you kind of like are in your head. I'm on stage complaining about being a parent. And I know there's someone in the audience that would like, you know, give everything to have one more day with her. You know what I mean? Like that, but uh, yeah. you know, if you go down that rabbit hole with every joke, I mean, every joke could possibly trigger an audience member, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, I get that. And and you can't, I mean, one of the, what I've always found trigger warnings sort of a bit odd because I get that they're kind of a signal that you care and that you're not going to be the kind of comedian who just like throws uh, things around recklessly. That's sort of what the signal is when you say trigger warning yeah. or you kind of warn someone about content, you're just saying, okay, I care. Because in reality, it's like the thing that actually triggers a horrible memory flashback is like the smell of the shirt of the guy who sits right, next to you in the right. room which is not a thing that the comedian can control or like the sound of the air conditioner, like smell particularly is one of those things that you absolutely a cannot police and B is the memory trigger of all memory right, triggers, right, right. you know, and nobody can ever control that really. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't know, I, the more you just, I think lean into your own experience with it, the more it's obvious that you're just talking about yourself, you know? Like I, I talk about my mom dying of COVID and I know there's people in there that have had a, a COVID death in the family in every audience. There has to be statistically. And maybe they don't yes. think it's funny or they don't, but it's, you know, you, you can't deny me the fact that I, this was my mom. So I know this isn't how you're dealing with it, your parent or whatever, but it's mine. And so at least, uh, I, 
um, I, I, uh, I think the audience can at least separate that a little bit, you know, with that versus somebody kind of like, you know, like if you're, you know, when you're in your, at least I, I was in an edgelord state where it's like every joke's got to have a, you know, just some, it's got to show how brave I am and how I don't care about the audience and stuff. And, yeah. you know, you talk about those same topics, but you've actually gone through it as opposed to like, you're just saying the words um, that gives you a different kind of gravitas that uh, the audience lets you get away with it. But the downside is you have to go through a lot of shitty <laughs> experiences so that you can talk about them with, <laughs> without people being, saying you're just being callous, you know? Yeah, and I also don't think you should have to suffer in order to talk about things that are worth talking about. You know, I don't think you necessarily need to have experienced something to have something to yeah, say about right. it. I mean, but in the same way, if you want to talk about, yeah, what well, you have something special if you have an experience i would guess like like maybe the the most egregious examples are like kind of guy comics making rape jokes uh, you know uh, and female hey, we don't know how many rapes they've committed like <laughs> yeah maybe they've got a lot of experience <laughs> and female comics talking about being raped it's like well i'd rather hear from the female comics than the guy just doing a one-off because they have the word rape in the joke as opposed to like any sort of investigation of, you know, them, their own part in something or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's that thing of, among other things, even if you sort of think people should be allowed to say whatever they want on stage. And I lean more towards that side of things. I'm sort of like the, the market will decide. Yeah. But it's that thing of it's so boring. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, there was a room here in Sydney once that was like explicitly you could do whatever you want and say whatever you wanted on stage, and like maybe one in fifty performances, there was someone doing something genuinely experimental and interesting. There was a lady who made the audience all stare into one another's eyes while she did a poo on a piece of canvas behind them. Oh my god! And uh, to make the point that people are so focused on uncomfortable eye contact that they won't even notice if there's a lady shitting on the stage behind <laughs> them. Uh, you know, like that. Genuinely outrageous, genuinely confronting, genuinely artistic, and I am so glad that there was a space that was made for that, yeah. right? But the other 49 out of 50 performances were just people having fun being racist or right. having fun saying that, like, the thing that you're not allowed to say was yes. always so boring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could say whatever you want. It's, you know, you are, I, you know, going for a laugh at the end of the joke. So, you know, I'll it's hard to get a laugh from me if I, if it feels like you're just kind of doing, you know, word experiments with yourself as opposed to like mining some, some like deeper truth and still coming up with a really good joke that kind of reveals it, you know? Where can people find you online and support your stuff? Oh, let's see. I have a website, killmartin.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as AnnieLaurie, A-N-Y-L-A-U-R-I-E, 16. Um, you could just look up my name, though, Laurie Kilmartin, K-I-L-1-L, Kilmartin. And, um, you know, I have an album called Corset, uh, C-O-R-S-E-T. It's that thing that women, you know, used to or still wear to make themselves appear thinner. And uh, that came out last year, so... It's excellent, by the way. I can um, I can highly recommend both following you on Twitter and the album oh, Corset so because those are both things that I've personally experienced. <laughs> thanks. And you also have a podcast. I have a podcast with Jackie Cation called The Jackie and Lori Show, and it's just us every week for like an hour, and we talk about comedy and our our comedy that week. And 
We are just starting year eight, which is really shocking, but it's weird. It's as we started this podcast that was dedicated to stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy got really popular. Like it wasn't that big of a deal, I don't think, before. We just didn't think it would last as long, you know? But all of a sudden, I don't know, like the the top t- trending, you know, hashtags on Twitter became comedians and it's it, and it's just like a topic of endless fascination to us because we do it, of course. Of course. And it's also a, a topic of endless fascination to me because I listen, but also you've got a great, like, great old dynamic of, of two friends talking about something really interesting. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've both been around a long time, too. So we, we have lots of stories. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thank you so much. I, well, I've had chocolate chip cookie dough, and I, I think I'm going to have a little bit more. Everything is tea if you think about it in the wrong way. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, do you know or do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle doll.